I'm sure you guys can relate to the feeling of a sense of accomplishment. This feeling in the world is this sense of accomplishment. Many of you have felt it. Maybe you were working on a certain homework assignment or you're writing a paper for what seemed like an eternity. And then when you finally finish it, you feel a great amount of relief that you're done, right? I remember when I submitted my very last college assignment, I was sitting in the library typing a super long paper. And once I hit submit, I felt this huge sense of accomplishment. After the four years of work that I put into reading books, taking quizzes and tests, writing papers, giving speeches, and doing other assignments, I finally finished what I had set out to do. We can all relate to this feeling, but there is one accomplishment in the history of mankind that far outweighs them all in terms of the work it took and the significance that it had for all the world. So as we continue our series in the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, we come to our second to last statement from Jesus, which is written for us in John 19.30. And this is what it says. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus' cry here is just three words in English. And in the Greek, in the original language, it's actually just one word, tetelestai. Our English translations only uncover part of what this word actually means. In the Greek, the word signifies past completed action with ongoing effects to the present day. Past completed action with ongoing effects to the present day. So, for example, if I said a nuclear bomb went off, if I said a nuclear bomb went off, then that is both past Completed action with ongoing ramifications, right? It's past action because the bomb already went off, but it's got ongoing ramifications because it likely gave out radiation, right? So it's past action with ongoing ramifications. So when Jesus says, it is finished, what he is truly saying is, it was finished, it is finished, and it forever will be finished. So when we read this phrase from our Savior, we must ask what it means for something to be finished, right? Maybe it would be helpful for you to think about your parents at dinner time, okay? When you're sitting there with your plate, you've eaten everything that you really like, and the broccoli is just staring right back at you, right? The broccoli's sitting there on the plate, but you really just want more mashed potatoes, okay? That's what you came here for. That's the good stuff, okay? When you ask your parents for more mashed potatoes, what are they going to tell you to do first? What are they going to say? Eat your broccoli. Finish your broccoli first, right? When they tell you to finish your food, they don't mean just take a couple more and move on. They mean completely devour the broccoli until you can move on to the goods, right? To finish something means to make a complete end of it. It means to make a complete end of it. It is to fully accomplish something that you have set out to do. It's a, Jesus says it is finished. It's a phrase that carries with it authority and finality. And it is in our best interest to dive into it, unpack it, and learn from our Savior as he hung on the cross for us. So my proposition for you today is simple. Come and rest in the finished work of Christ. Come and rest in the finished work of Christ. So in order for us to rest in the finished work of Christ, we must ask, what is finished? I have three main points today, and they all answer the question, what is finished? 
The three answers to that question are not meant to be exhaustive. They do not completely answer the question, what is finished? But they are a good starting point for understanding what Jesus meant in this saying from the cross. So if you're a note taker, it might be easiest for you to write the question, what is finished? And then the three answers to that subsequently, okay? So we ask the question, what is finished? Well, firstly, the, f- the fulfillment of prophecies and foreshadowings. The fulfillment of prophecies and foreshadowings. So firstly, different prophecies have been fulfilled. As we've seen throughout this series, Jesus is the fulfillment of many different prophecies. Scholars estimate that Jesus fulfilled somewhere between 300 and 500 prophecies. So it would take us far too long to dive into each of those, right? We don't have the time to look at each one, although I I would love to do that. But some of those prophecies are especially worth noting, and hopefully these are familiar to you guys. Isaiah 7.14 prophesied that Jesus would, and we know this to be true from the scriptures. Micah 5.2 told us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and the Gospels reveal this to us. Isaiah 53, which is one that we've been talking about quite a bit here, tells us about the suffering servant and how he is the Savior King. Jesus fulfills this on the cross. So there are these big prophecies, these popular prophecies like the ones that I just listed that Jesus fulfilled, but there are even smaller ones, ones that you may not think are important or as, um, as pertinent to you, but Jesus even fulfills the smaller ones. For example, Psalm 22 tells us that his bones would not be broken on the cross. Now, you may be wondering, why does it matter if his bones are broken? Like, I, that doesn't really make sense. How does it matter? Well, typically, in the Roman era, when someone was crucified, the Roman soldiers would break their legs so that they could not get themselves up to catch air. So, it's interesting that we're told that his legs were not broken because later in the passage, John tells us the soldiers went to break his legs, but when they got there, they realized he was already dead. So, they did not break his bones. So from these big prophecies, from these really popular prophecies like Isaiah 53 that we've been talking about to the smaller ones like Psalm 22, Jesus fulfills every single one of God's promises and his prophecies. I appreciate what A.W. Pink says when he writes, As there was a complete set of prophecies which had to do with the first coming of the Savior, so also there's a complete set of prophecies which have to do with his coming. What Pink is saying is that there are just... Uh, is that just as there are prophecies in the scriptures about Jesus' earthly ministry, about his first coming, there are also prophecies about his second coming, right? You guys have read those as well. And so since we can see how clearly God fulfilled the promises and prophecies for Christ's first coming, we can have absolute assurance. We can be comfortable and confident in the fact that God will fulfill those promises and prophecies for Christ's second coming. We know that we have a Savior who is coming back, right? But prophecies are not the only way that Christ fulfills the Old Testament, right? This point is the the fulfillment of prophecies in foreshadowings. So foreshadowings are also fulfilled. Throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, different people and objects are there to point us to something greater. All of these people and events are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They're all fulfilled in him, which is why he can say it is finished. So I want to walk you guys through the lyrics of a song, okay? I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to walk you through the lyrics, and I think masterfully reveals the roles of people in the Old Testament. So hopefully this, this helps you understand kind of what I'm getting at here. The song is called Christ the True and Better by Keith and Kristen Getty. 
So here's the first verse, okay? I want you guys to listen closely. Christ, the true and better Adam, son of God and son of man, who, when tempted in the garden, never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse, then rising, crushed the serpent's head. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that Jesus is the second Adam. So Adam is not just a, a random person who is just an end of himself, but he actually points us to Jesus Christ. That is his purpose. So Jesus persisted in the garden when he was tempted, and he crushed the serpent in his death on the cross. Things when Adam could not do either one. Here's the second verse. Christ the true and better Isaac, humble son of sacrifice, who would climb the fearful mountain there to offer up his life. Laid with faith upon the altar, father's joy and only son, there salvation was provided. Oh, what full and boundless love. So if you guys know the story in Genesis 22, where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, how many of you are familiar with that? You guys know that? Yeah. So that story is actually meant to point us to the future where another father sends his son as a sacrifice. But instead of that son being replaced, that son is actually sacrificed on behalf of the world. So it's fascinating. I would encourage you guys, to, if you want to write down Genesis 22, go read that in your free time and look at all of the parallels from that to the death of Jesus Christ. And now he is sent out by the father. So Isaac, Adam and Isaac are both pointing us towards Jesus. Here's the next verse. Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home, standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See the veil is torn forever, cleansed with blood we pass now through. So Moses is meant to point us towards Jesus Christ. Moses even prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up a prophet like him in Israel, but someone who would lead his people even better than Moses did. Moses was talking about Jesus Christ. So Christ is the better Moses. And here's the fourth and final verse of this song. Christ, the true and better David, lowly shepherd, mighty king. He, the champion in the battle, where, O death, is now thy sting. In our place he bled and conquered, found him Lord of majesty. His shall be the throne forever, and we shall e'er his people be. So the fourth and final person this song talks about is King David, who reveals to us Christ because he is both the shepherd and he's king, right? Jesus sees us as his sheep. He is the good shepherd, but he's also our king. He fights for victory, and we see that most clearly on the cross. So this is just a list of uh, very few people who point us to Jesus. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't just people who pointed us to Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, objects did too. So, for example, Noah's Ark represented God's salvation for all who were in it. Those who were in the Ark, right, Noah and his family, they were saved from God's judgment. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 3, he tells us that the Ark actually foreshadowed baptism into Jesus Christ. So just as Noah and all of his family passed through the waters in the ark, so we pass through the waters in Jesus Christ, and we are saved from God's judgment. So the ark points us to Jesus. Another example was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where God dwelt with men. John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. That word for dwelt literally is tabernacled. So what John is telling us is that Jesus Christ came to dwell, to tabernacle among us. So just as God met with his people in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, now he comes to meet with his people in Jesus Christ. So these are just a couple of examples, and there are so many more, of how people and objects foreshadow to Jesus Christ. These people show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of what we see in the Old Testament. And this is why Jesus can say, it is finished on the cross. So come and rest in the finished work of Christ. Again, we ask, what is finished? The second thing is the purpose of the incarnation. The purpose of the incarnation. If you were in this party, you may remember that I mentioned Christmas time. As weird as it sounds, Christmas time is a perfect time to think about Jesus' death and resurrection. This is because one of the reasons Jesus was born was so that he might die. In the same way, just as Christ's birth should point us to his death, so also should his death point us to his birth. Christ's coming into the world and his death on the cross are intimately tied together. And his birth does not make sense to us unless it is seen in light of his death and resurrection. Here's what I mean. Every story, every good story at least, has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So here's an example, okay? How many of you know the story of Humpty Dumpty? Yeah, okay. If you don't know it, I don't know what to tell you. It's like the most basic. But I'm going to tell it to you right now, okay? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. The end. Okay, that's the story of Humpty Dumpty. Okay, there might be an extended version, but I just know that one. Okay, but the story, as short as it is, has a clear beginning, middle, and end. And it would be insufficient for me to simply share with you the beginning of the story. Imagine if I came up to you and I said, hey, I'd like to tell you a story. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. And I just stopped there. It would be insufficient. Right? You would be missing the entire story. I'd just be telling you the beginning. In a similar manner, Christ's earthly ministry has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning of his earthly ministry was his birth him. But if you were only told Jesus was born, you would not know the entire reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do. The middle part of his earthly ministry is his teaching and his miracles, and it climaxes in his death on the cross. And the end, of course, is his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. This is the beginning, the middle, and the end of Christ's earthly ministry. But you can't understand this story unless you take into account the beginning, the middle, and the end. Christ was born, Christ died, and Christ was raised again. I read to you guys a couple of verses at that Christmas party about the purposes uh, of Christ's birth. But there's one that I highlighted that I want to reiterate. It was Mark 10, 45. Many of you know this verse. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What this tells us is Jesus was born in the manger in order to accomplish the salvation of sinners, which came about by his death on the cross. So what was the purpose of the incarnation? The purpose of the incarnation of Christ's birth was in part to set the stage for Jesus to die on the cross. Since Jesus came for this purpose, and since it was being actualized on the cross, 
He can cry. It is finished as he is dying. Now, you might wonder how giving his life as a ransom for many could be finished if he hasn't even died yet, right? How could he cry, it is finished, about his death if he hasn't died? Well, when Jesus cried, it, he was speaking in anticipation of his death. All things had been fulfilled and followed through on perfectly, to the dot, perfectly, sinlessly. The only missing piece was his death, which followed shortly after. In fact, if you keep reading, it's the very next verse. So it must be clarified that although the purposes of the incarnation are finished, Jesus is not finished being incarnate. Does that make sense? Although the purposes of the incarnation are finished, Jesus is not finished being incarnate. He did not give up his human body as he ascended into heaven. Instead, he's seated at the right hand of the Father in a physical body. And that matters for us. This actually has big implications for us. Since the Bible tells us in 1 John 3, 2, that we will be like him again. So whatever he is like now, we will be like him in glory. We will not be bodiless souls floating around. Maybe you guys have seen the movie Soul, or is it called Soul? Is that what it is? Yeah, on Disney Plus. Yeah, whatever. We're not going to be like that, floating around, right? We're going to be embodied, just like our embodied Savior, and we will be glorifying him forever. So Christ has finished the work, not only of fulfilling prophecies and fulfilling foreshadowings, but also of fulfilling the purposes of the incarnation, and that's why he can cry out, it is finished. So come and rest in the finished work of Christ. We ask one more time, what is finished? The third and final point is the defeat of sin and Satan. The defeat of sin and Satan. Now, prior to Genesis 3, which records the fall, Adam and Eve walked in the garden in perfect fellowship with their creator God. Perfect fellowship. However, since the fall and the subsequent introduction of sin, man has struggled with sin in their efforts to please God. We struggle with sin. We please God, but we please him imperfectly. This struggle against sin has been so prevalent in the world because of the influence that Satan has over the world. He's often, in the scriptures, referred to as the prince, god, and ruler of this world. He is orchestrating all of the evil and attempting to draw people away from God. However, even though sometimes we can see how Satan is, oftentimes it can be difficult to notice influencing the world. A, a famous quote that says, the devil's greatest trick was convincing the world he didn't exist. It was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Because if you believe he doesn't exist, then you don't think he's actually going to affect your day-to-day life. That's one of the biggest mistakes we as Christians could make, is believing that Satan isn't real, and therefore not leading people astray. However, we know that he does exist. That's what the Bible tells us, and he very much wreaks havoc on the world. In some instances, it's clear as day. I'm sure you guys could be thinking of a few in your head as I'm talking. Some of them are really clear, like how he's confused the world on topics such as our biological sex or the murder of unborn babies, right? But other instances are more subtle, where he's confused us and and wreaked havoc on our lives, such as his use of things like technology to draw us away from God and entice us to sin. Every which way we turn, everywhere we look, we can see how the God of this world has a grip on the of this world. Now, in light of this, 
It can be tempting to think that Satan has full and total control over this world, that there is no hope for us. However, the gospel tells us that there's more than hope. There is the impending defeat of Satan. So I told you guys that Genesis 3 records the fall of humanity into sin. I'm curious, can anyone guess where the first promise of the defeat of Satan is in Scripture? Does anyone know where the first promise of his defeat is in Scripture? Genesis 3 is the fall. Anyone know? You just start a random guess. There's a lot of chapters, so if you guess wrong, then I, I don't blame you. No one wants to guess? It is. Does anyone know what chapter in Genesis? Not two. It's in Genesis 3. That's right. So the fall of humanity, where humans go and fall into sin and rebel against their God, their creator God is in Genesis 3. And God tells us that Satan will be, defe- will be defeated only a couple verses later. So I want you guys to open your Bibles, uh, turn them over to Genesis chapter 3, okay? Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, okay? Genesis three fourteen. Here's what it says. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, So he's cursing the serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's the the really important verse, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse has long been referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, okay? It's a really big word. It's Latin, which means the first gospel, okay? The first gospel. It's interesting to think that in in chapter 3 of Genesis, it's page 3 in my Bible, we have the first glimpse of the gospel. Oftentimes when you think of the gospel, you think that it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? Those are the gospels. But the first gospel is recorded here. It's a promise that even though mankind has rebelled against God, fallen into sin, God will send a redeemer who will crush the serpent. That's what it says. He shall bruise your head. So this is the first gospel. Now, clearly, even though we have this first gospel, we still see the works of darkness in this world, right? Even though we have this promise that Satan will be defeated and that he is defeated in Christ's work on the cross, we still see the works of Satan in this world. The defeat of sin and Satan are example of the already not yet in the Christian life. How many of you heard of the already not yet? Does that ring a bell for anyone? Yeah. So the already not yet is the biblical concept that some things are both true right now and yet not yet true, will be true, and not it will be true uh, at Christ's second coming. So, for example, here's an example of this. We are told in Ephesians 2, 6, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Okay, that's a present tense verb. Okay, so we are currently seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's right now, already. And yet it's clear, right, if you look around, that we are also not yet seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. So there's a way in which that is true. We are with Christ since we are in Christ, but we are not yet seated with him. So the defeat of Satan falls within the already not yet framework. Satan has already been defeated and rendered powerless. Scripture makes that plain. It makes it clear in John 12, 31. However, 
We also know that Satan prowls around like a lion waiting to devour, and his goal is to cause us to veer off course, right, away from Christ. So we are in this already not yet tension right now in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. But 1 John 4, 4 is the perfect verse to meditate on and rejoice in. It says this, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus Christ, who is in us, in his death on the cross, he finished his work of putting sin and Satan's power to death. Sin and Satan have been defeated. So come and rest in the finished work of Christ. Now, as we come to a close, I just want us to think for a second about why Jesus would say it is finished. Why would he say that? Right? We're going through seven sayings on the cross. This is one of them. Why is this one of his sayings? I believe that Jesus said these words because he knows that we are prone to add to his work on the cross. That's what we're prone to. Our nature, our sinful nature, attests to the fact that we struggle to rest in his finished work. We are constantly trying to contribute to our salvation. We're constantly trying to add on to our salvation. But here's what John Calvin says in regards to adding on, to contributing to our salvation. He says, Everything which contributes to the salvation of men is to be found in Christ and ought not to be sought anywhere else. He's telling us, that if we're looking for salvation, if we're looking for righteousness, if we're looking for justification, if we're looking for all of these things, for godliness and holiness, it cannot be found anywhere else other than Jesus Christ. That's why he cries out, it is finished, because it is finished in him and in him alone. So do you believe that Christ's work is finished? Or are you adding your own work to the work of the Savior? There is nothing that we can add to Christ's work on the cross. It's not as if it, it would be really hard to add things to salvation, but we could. It's utterly impossible for us. We cannot achieve our own salvation. So if you are attempting to earn your salvation by good works, by doing good deeds, or by abstaining from bad, I would remind you once more, Christ tells you from the cross, it is finished. So come and rest in the finished work of Christ.